Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, I have the distinct honor of being joined by Michigan Supreme Court Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick. Her passion for access to justice has been a constant throughout her career in public service. Immediately out of law school in New York, she joined the Legal Aid Society and the Office of the Appellate Defender. As a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, she launched a number of clinics devoted to domestic violence, pediatric health, mediation, low-income taxpayers, human trafficking, and juvenile justice. The Michigan Innocence Clinic, which she founded, and in which students represent wrongfully convicted Michiganders, has exonerated over 22 people so far and has shined a light on the important justice issues underlying wrongful conviction. She joined the Michigan Supreme Court in January 2013 and became Chief Justice in January 2019. Since joining the court, Chief Justice McCormick continues to teach at the law school and continues to speak out on important issues around the access to justice problem in our society. Listen in to today's discussion to hear her thoughts on the A to J challenge and how we can bridge the gap and why judges should be agents for justice system reform. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Chief Justice, thank you for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. I am too. You've been doing such incredible things both before and since you became a Supreme Court Justice and then Chief Justice. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let's start at the beginning, though. You grew up in New Jersey. You went to law school at NYU. And I know you went to law school with a passion for advocacy for the, what's now known as the A to J gap, access to justice issues, which has been a theme of your career. Where did that passion come from? Why law school? Why that drive to make things better for a lot of people? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have any lawyers in my family. I have a big Irish Catholic family and no aunts or uncles, no parents, no cousins, and actually none in the next generation either. So I didn't have a lot of understanding of what lawyers did from home, but I had a godmother. My godmother was a great godmother. She didn't have kids of her own. I sometimes think I got better focus than you know, my siblings had aunts who had a million kids of their own. And so I had this really close relationship with mine and she was a legal aid lawyer in New York City. And she would pick me up in New Jersey and bring me into the city for a night or two, which was really exciting. And I would go to work with her. And so my idea of a lawyer, I think from the time I was very little, was somebody who helped people with really important problems. And so I don't think I had a sophisticated sense of what lawyers were and what they did as a whatever 21-year-old applying to law school, but I felt like it was uh, a way to help people with important problems. And NYU is known as a school that focuses on that part of the legal profession, in addition to being a great law school generally. I assume that's part of the reason you picked it. Yeah. And it has this great public interest scholarship firm, the Root Tilden Scholarship. And I was the Root Tilden Scholar for the Third Circuit. So that was another good reason why I picked it, because uh, my tuition was paid for. Oh, fabulous. My daughter went to NYU. She's now a public defender. Cool. Yeah. For a while, she was defending death penalty cases in Mississippi. That's hard work. That is hard work. That is. That is hard work. So you you got out of law school and you started in legal aid before going to Yale Law School. What lessons did you learn from your time as a legal aid attorney that have stuck with you through your career? 
So legal aid means a lot of things in New York City. I worked for the Legal Aid Society as a public defender. My godmother was a civil legal services lawyer. So she was uh, helping people with evictions and benefits cases and general civil poverty law. But I was a public defender in Manhattan in 1991 to 1994, almost five. So, you know, that was a time when there was a lot of talk about crime and drugs in particular. And our The caseloads and the way indigent criminal defense was practiced in a busy court system was certainly full of lessons for anybody who sort of cared about the way justice works for ordinary people. And I don't think there is a way for law students or new lawyers to understand exactly what that looks like and what the stakes are and without actually doing that. Being in those courtrooms every day, standing next to people who were having to make uh, really hard decisions about how many years of their lives they were likely to spend away from their families, you know, will never leave me. It taught me things that I'll never forget about the way our criminal legal system works. That's awesome. And you then moved to law school first at Yale and then to Michigan, where at one point you were in a dean's position in Michigan. But a lot of your focus was clinical programs, where you started a lot of different clinical programs, particularly at Michigan and built it in one of the great programs in the country. What is it about the clinical education side of law school that you clearly found so intriguing? Yeah, I have a couple of different answers to that. Yeah, I, I, I largely taught clinical classes, although I, I also occasionally taught criminal law and some legal ethics classes, but the clinical classes were the ones that I was most passionate about. It's the part of legal education that I think is most impactful. I think there are things that students can learn representing people who wouldn't otherwise have lawyers that they can't learn from books or in conversations, even with smart, well-intentioned professors in I call them unclinical classes, the rest of the curriculum. (laughs) And so I like teaching those classes more than any others. That's just honest. And I think they are a valuable part of the curriculum that I happen to believe everybody should experience. I think all lawyers should have the learning experience where they have to help people navigate justice problems who couldn't otherwise afford lawyers. And I, you know, have lots of thoughts about legal education and the ways in which it might want to evolve to better serve the democratic principles that we promise when we, you know, talk about equal justice for all. And I think more experience in courtrooms where poor people have to navigate justice problems is a part of legal education that I think we could think of doing more of. So the clinics are one place where where you're doing that. On top of that, I happen to believe that law clinics can serve a really important role in a legal ecosystem. So at Michigan, for example, when we thought about new clinical programs, we were mindful of where the gaps were in the state's system of representation. Now, obviously, we didn't fill all those gaps, but it made sense to us. If we're going to put smart students to work on behalf of a legal problem, it makes sense to pick one that nobody else has the resources to work on, right? So when I founded the Michigan Innocence Clinic in 2008, it was actually the first non-DNA innocence clinic in the country, but there's nobody who's paid to do post-conviction representation for people who can't afford lawyers. And it's a set of really complicated procedurally and often factually legal problems Perfect for smart Michigan law students, right? Set them loose on on the, the rules, the doctrine, and the investigation. 
So I, I like when law clinics can contribute to, you know, a legal infrastructure in a, in a problem solving kind of way. And I think law schools have that obligation, right? If you're going to be running clinical programs, you should be picking the ones that can make your community stronger. You know, you, you talk about starting a number of programs, and, and I know you started a lot of different clinical programs in Michigan, the Innocence Project. I'm not that in tune with Michigan specifically, but I don't think of law schools as being particularly flexible organizations in terms of new programs and new ideas. And yet you were clearly successful in navigating that landscape to create these programs, which have a lot of impact on people. What what did you find was necessary to drive that change and create those programs? I mean, I'm not sure I had a magic formula. I do think I arrived on the law school scene at kind of the right time. You know, there was new focus on the value of practical legal education, formally and informally. I mean, formally, the accreditor was starting to, you know, look more precisely at what opportunities students were given in law school for practical legal education. And that meant Law schools had to figure out how to meet those new criteria, and the market was demanding it. Students wanted to know. The students who were shopping for law schools wanted to know what options they'd have for clinical experiences. So I think in some ways I got lucky because I, you know, I arrived in the position of the Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at a time when Michigan Law School had to grow its clinical programs. And so I had the opportunity to be the one leading a lot of that. You're still an adjunct professor at Michigan, if I understand it correctly. I teach one class a year still, mostly because I can't shake the habit. I can't shake the <laughs> library, the smart colleagues, or the students. There's something about it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's sort of talk a little bit about some of your work in the access to justice space, because I know that's a particular passion of yours. The first question for me is, you wrote an article recently in the Yale Law Journal where you talk about judges' responsibility to take on these problems and advocate for change. And you had a, I'm quoting from your article, a judge cannot ignore inequities once she becomes aware of them. To borrow Brendan Sullivan's phrase and the dynamics of reforming and improving the justice system, a judge should not be a potted plant which I think is just fabulous wording. For those of us whose subscription to the Yale Law Journal may have lapsed, give us the two or three points you were making in terms of, you make points about the ethical obligations of judges not to ignore. That's not a universally held sentiment in the judiciary. Yeah, it's not. I think there are a lot of judges who, because of the decision-making norms and rules, which I think are very important, I mean, the, the public has to have confidence that their judges are neutral to believe that the system is fair. And there are, therefore, pretty important rules and guidelines for what we can and can't do in our decision-making role. But in state courts, I think, you know, it's, this is mostly relevant to state courts because it's state courts where we we see most legal problems. That's where most people have to go to resolve legal problems. We also have a real role to play in leading our communities to make upstream change that would make a real difference. Judges see the end results of lots of our community's hardest problems. The judges are the frontline mental health workers in our communities right now. They're the frontline addiction counselors in many of our communities right now. In a lot of ways, they're the ones who see the downstream effects of policies that are 
I presume made by good intentioned people upstream that don't always work out. And if a judge believes that somehow the judicial canons prevent her from saying something about that or doing something about that, We're losing a very important voice in solving our community's hardest problems. So I wanted to make the case in writing that not only is there not an ethical problem with the judge advocating for change based on what she sees in her courtroom, that she has an ethical obligation to do so, that she has information that nobody else has. And so she should take that information and see what she can do about it. We've had a lot of experience in the last couple of years. The pandemic has brought so much change to the profession. And I spend a lot of time with my fellow chief justices around the country. And we've all been doing a lot of work that we have never done before. And the Conference of Chief Justices has been very eloquent about our leadership role in solving the civil justice problems and the racial justice problems. A lot of my fellow chiefs and I have had this conversation many times, and I thought it was time that somebody wrote it down. So I wrote it down. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes, and I encourage listeners to to read it. It's a fascinating article. You touched on a point I want to tease out just a little bit, which is the perception of politicalization of the court. And I know there's a line out there for you, but we've seen Given the political situation in which the country as a general proposition finds itself and the poll results you see of the Supreme Court being viewed as a more political animal than ever before, those have to be currents that you as a chief justice are worried about in terms of the public perception of the court system in Michigan and your other chief justices. How do you deal with those winds which are blowing in a not a particularly good direction? Yeah, I, I I worry about it a lot. The thing about courts is the only currency we have is the public's confidence in what we do. We don't have an army. We don't have any money. We only deal in public confidence. And if the public loses confidence, it's pretty scary, right? Because the rule of law is, after all, just a set of ideas. You know, we don't have a way to enforce it. We have to rely on people believing in it and believing in us. But again, I think there are two different parts of a judge's job and especially a chief justice's job or any justice on a state Supreme Court, because we have constitutional administrative oversight of all the courts of the state. So we have our decision making role. And in that role, you know, we often make decisions that disappoint our friends and our supporters. That's part of the job. And, you know, if you're not prepared to lose friends and lose elections, you should probably get a different job. That happens in the decision-making function. We have a real opportunity in the administrative oversight role. You know, we have constitutional administrative oversight of all the courts of the state. In Michigan, there are 242 trial courts, 560 judges. They adjudicate literally three to four million cases a year. That's a lot of people who are coming in contact with our court system because they have problems, problems that aren't going to make their way to the Supreme Court. But if they can get resources, if they can get treated with dignity and respect, if they can understand how to solve those problems as a result of their interaction with the courts, if they can find a way to solve other problems in their lives as a result of coming in contact with the courts, we have a real opportunity to build trust. And we've been working hard on that. And I think that's our best hope right now, because I agree with you that the public sentiment about courts decision making, and in particular federal courts, I want to I want to leave state courts out of it, but it's not only federal courts. The chief justice of Ohio is a very good friend of mine, and she's got people calling for her impeachment right now based on her decisions in some of the redistricting cases. And that's a 
virus, that whole, you know, the, the politicians coming for judges when they don't like their decisions is a virus that, that, that is a problem. But in the meantime, we have all these opportunities to build public trust and confidence by all the interactions people have in tough circumstances with our courts, by treating them with dignity and respect, by connecting them to resources by making sure they are heard and that they understand next steps. And that we can keep doing while people complain about decisions. So you administer, you gave the numbers, a large system. Yeah. Michigan, lots of judges, lots of courts spread out over lots of, how do you go about taking advantage of these opportunities and driving change? How does that work on a practical matter? It's a great question. It's sometimes surprisingly easy and sometimes surprisingly difficult, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Michigan, like most states, had seen our county jail populations grow tremendously, triple over 30 years, even though crime was at a 50-year low. Like many states, we don't have good criminal justice data. We have 83 counties, 81 county jails, and 81 county jail data collection systems, some of which are still on paper. And so we didn't have any way to understand what was driving those increased jail rates, but we all knew we should figure it out. And so together with the legislature and the governor, because it's a multi-branch, multi-stakeholder problem, and the great assistance of the Pew Charitable Trust, who gave us people who would track down the data for us and make sense of it, we did a real bipartisan state and county multi-stakeholder task force process and came to 18 recommendations. And by last December, the governor had signed 20 bills that's making Michigan a national leader in front-end criminal legal system reform. It was a pretty incredible process. We had a similar process here in Michigan with back-end reform. Our expungement statute is the most progressive statute in the country. It's automatic for most offenses. At the same time, we're right now working on civil justice reform, and our plan, I think, is the most innovative one in the country. And that process, we're also including the other branches of government because we also think we need them. We need the legislature's funding and support, and we need the executive branch agencies that can assist in many of the cases that people need help with to work with us. But we primarily worked to set up the plan with the state bar and the Michigan Legal Help, which is our self-represented litigant website. So multi-stakeholder approach is to me fundamental collaboration. I call it radical collaboration. You're going to have to collaborate with people you might not want to. I think it's critical to solving big problems in an upstream way. And you have to have you know, a majority of justices on your court that support it. As the chief justice, I'm just one vote. I'm not that special. I don't know about that. But in terms of how you manage the political side of this process, that has to have been an enormous learning opportunity for you. I I didn't see in your resume any political offices before becoming a member of the Supreme Court. No, no no, no political offices before, none after, not interested in it. (laughs) (laughs) But that had to have been an incredible learning opportunity for you to figure out I can't only imagine the machinations that have to go on in dealing with these multi-stakeholder discussions. Yeah. People running a a business, you know, work hard, but at least they're all kind of moving in the same direction. And you're not trying to figure out how to bring somebody in just for this one idea and let somebody kill another idea so you can get them on board. You know, yeah, it's a lot harder when you have to work with so many different stakeholders that don't always agree about everything. 
I've heard you speak before about the impact of the pandemic and the ability to drive change in the access to courts. We all know about virtual hearings, et cetera, et cetera. Talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've seen take effect. But even more interesting to me is as we maybe come out of the pandemic or at least get tired of being in the pandemic, how do you make sure those changes stick to the extent you want them to stick? Yeah, it's a great question because a lot of people, I think, would would love to go back to the way the, the world was before the pandemic. And that would be, I think, a terrible mistake given what we've learned. But yeah, I've said a number of times that the pandemic was kind of the shot in the arm that the legal profession needed. We were somehow able to resist the tech revolution that came for basically every other industry. I mean, maybe education is like also sort of successfully avoided it. But we we somehow were able to keep our heads down and, you know, keep our insular, siloed approach to what we do and and how we do it until we had a global pandemic. And then all of a sudden we had to figure out new tools. And in addition to new tools, we had to figure out how to collaborate and act like entrepreneurs, which isn't that comfortable for us. We had to try things and they didn't all work. You know, we tried and failed a lot of things as we were figuring out what would work and had to move quickly, which is also not comfortable. We stood up statewide online dispute resolution in a matter of months. Every person in Michigan can access our platform for free with or without a mediator. That wouldn't have happened like that without this opportunity. We stood up a statewide eviction diversion program and got the legislature to give us ARPA funding to fund it. We had a little bit of a head start on everybody on virtual hearings because our judges already had Zoom licenses. That doesn't mean they knew how to use them. But we had all the (laughs) hardware and the software to stand up virtual courtrooms. We built a platform so the public could click on and see which judges were working in their virtual courtrooms and watch the YouTube stream. And we've learned as a result of all that, some really sort of important data points, like, for example, default rates go down when you give people a virtual option, especially for self-represented litigants, because all the problems with getting to physical courthouses are real problems. People have transportation problems, they have jobs, they have childcare issues, they might be disabled. And if you give them a remote option, it increases their, their chance to appear. And we can't turn away from that. We now know that. The other thing we learned is that by collaborating and innovating, and we've done more collaboration with foundations, academic institutions. We have all these like chiefs and law schools, you know, working on big projects that just hadn't happened before. It's like there's just all kinds of growth happening. And it's that as much as the hard tools we learned and and will take with us that I think is really, really important. So how do you keep that momentum going as people want to go back to what they knew before? Because that's a natural human tendency. Yep. It's a natural human tendency and lawyers have it more than other humans. I don't know. We we get it worse. And it's hard. I will say that, you know, in Michigan, we're collecting data. We're going to do some pilot projects to collect the data about, you know, where remote platforms produce results that we then have to make permanent once we know that, you know, once we know what things work better for more people, I think it's hard to argue with the obligation to do them. It's funny how often lawyers and judges, you know, think that 
we can make decisions about how we do things in our profession just based on our guts. You know, we all have strong opinions about how things should go and what doesn't work on remote platforms and what definitely does. And everybody's got a really strong opinion. And, you know, unless you have data, you're just a guy with an opinion. And so, you know, I feel like this is a moment where we should be collecting all this data that's available to us, not just in, in Michigan, but across the country. There's all kinds of new data that we can collect and translate and look at and make smart decisions about how to go forward. But ultimately, you have to put what you learned into rules. You have to make some of it permanent. One of the discussion points, particularly in civil litigation, has been the use of alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, particularly for those people that can afford it, to find a workaround from the typical court system. Do you worry about those trend lines and becoming a system of have and have-nots? terms of who has access to the court system and who chooses to avoid it. Does that give you any concern? So I think there are a few different pieces to your question. And one is, what do we make of the fact that wealthy people with justice problems, legal problems, can avail themselves of alternatives to courts when others can't? And I think that's problematic. I think it means courts have to make sure that all court users have options for alternative dispute resolution if that's preferable. I mean, and and sometimes it is. In fact, for a lot of people, they'll choose an online or alternative dispute resolution process if offered. You know, I do think there is this moment right now where we're going to have to see whether courts across the country are going to respond to what the market now knows, right? I mean, the market now knows that there are more efficient ways to do things. There are ways to do justice business in a more accessible way, in a more inclusive way. And the ADR providers that people pay for are going to respond, right? Because there's a private marketplace and they're going to likely respond well. And so there'll be some pressure on courts to make sure they respond too. I'm not entirely confident about where all that goes, but it'll be interesting. Not sure either. I know we're at about our time, but the last couple of questions I have for you, which is way too big a topic to cover in detail, is the discussion around regulatory change in the profession, the ability to utilize skill sets of people who may not have gone to law school or technology as a tool set, either with the lawyers or without lawyers. What work are you doing to sort of look into those regulatory changes? I mean, there's no, there's work going on in Michigan and Utah and Arizona and California, Washington. What thoughts do you have about those efforts? I think the Jenga pieces are getting pulled out one by one, and the regulatory reform work is a really critical part of the answer to the access to justice problem. 80% of our neighbors, maybe maybe 86%, can't afford lawyers to help with their justice problems. And lawyers, we're not going to produce enough lawyers to solve those problems. Lawyers are very hard to scale. So it's time for our profession to figure out new ways to do that. Navigators feels like the easy one. Our regulatory reform work group is working on navigators first and then alternative business structures next. But they're both important. There have to be ways to figure out how to scale solving justice problems. And doing what we're doing isn't working. You know, we've been nibbling around the edges of our access to justice problem my whole career. And we haven't really made a difference. It makes no sense that 
in medicine, sometimes a nurse practitioner or a PA can solve your medical problem just fine. You don't always need a surgeon, right? There are lots of other providers that can help with your health issues. There are probably lots of other people besides lawyers who can help with our justice issues. And there's lots of ways you can make sure that those people are providing good service. I mean, nurse practitioners don't get to just do whatever the heck they want, you know, without licensure and regulation. So lawyers need to open up their imaginations a little bit. And now is the moment to do that. Chief Justice McCormick, thank you so much for your time today. You're doing some fabulous work, and thank you very much for your contributions to the profession and to the court system and for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.